Oh God, sometimes we come before you and we are joyful and consumed by the beauty of your world. And sometimes we are filled with sadness or anger. We know that there is room for these feelings and all of our others when we come to worship you. We ask that you would inspire us with your love, that you would renew faith in us, that you would gather us together as a people and send us out into your world inspired to be a family of faith. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts, may they be acceptable in your sight. For you, O Lord, are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. When people talk about spiritual things, I find that they often use words like wholeness and fulfillment. Being spiritual is supposed to lead one to a place where our heart's deepest desires find their completion, where we no longer yearn for what we do not have. We find ourselves no longer striving, but finally at rest. Not only Christianity, but all kinds of spiritual movements make this promise of wholeness and fulfillment. Those arguments have their place. In Christianity, this wholeness is perhaps what awaits us in heaven. But in this life, I have my doubts that it is possible to ever reach fulfillment. And I think it is good to talk honestly about that. I have found that there are praiseworthy things to be said about a life that is not whole or complete. A life that includes other feelings, feelings that we call things like yearning, longing, desire. It is a wish for something we have not yet reached, and this desire can be healthy when the things we desire are the right ones. This morning I'm going to talk about the role of desire, yearning, longing in faith. Yearning is not only a part of who we are as human beings, yearning is a part of who God is. Who is God? What is God like, anyway? That's sort of what I've been preaching about lately. Two weeks ago, I preached a sermon on the book of Amos. We looked at a passage in Scripture that speaks about a tough part of who God is, God's wrath. We talked about that wrath in its historical context. God's wrath is God's anger in response to things in the world that are not the way they are supposed to be. Hunger, injustice, gun violence. Much like a parent with an adult child who has gone astray, God will withdraw support from us when we misuse the gifts God has given us, when we use God's gifts to hurt one another. 
So in the history of Israel, there are stories of God allowing Israel to fail when they forget about justice and neglect the poor and the suffering. Bible stories about God's wrath are not enjoyable to read, but they do demonstrate that God loves us enough to make difficult choices. God's love reaches out to people when the rest of us neglect them. Stories of God's wrath show one aspect of what God is like in relationship to us. And that raises a question that appears all over the Bible. What is God like? What can we expect of God? How does God behave toward us? The Old Testament tells stories that show many, many dimensions of what God is like. I sense that most often we think of God as distant and transcendent, unchangeable. And yet many of the Old Testament stories challenge those ideas. In Exodus 32, for example, there's a, a threat of God's wrath that appears, and Moses pleads with God on behalf of the people, and we are explicitly told that God changes his mind. In 1 Kings 19, God communicates with Elijah not through lightning bolts and thunder, but through a still, small voice. The Creator God, in Genesis chapter 1, who Michelangelo taught us is an old man with a white beard. Genesis chapter 1 says something different. In the Hebrew, it's called Ruach HaKodesh. It's a feminine word for God's spirit hovering over the waters in the beginning. I could go on and on with examples like these. God is full of surprises. Today's scripture from the prophet Hosea shows another dimension of God. The chief metaphor of Hosea is that Israel is to God like an unfaithful spouse. Hosea describes the relationship between God and the people of Israel like a marriage in which one partner God has given everything and loved generously only to be heartbroken by a lover who wanders away. The book is a narrative, a story, in which the prophet Hosea himself marries a prostitute who will repeatedly be unfaithful. And this dramatic story, this physical action, is meant to show how Israel has behaved in response to the love of God. It may surprise you to find this metaphor in the Bible if you expect the Bible only to mention good morals and virtues. But what better example could there be? For most humans understand the bitterness of loving someone who doesn't love you back. Most of us understand that. We've been there. 
In case the illustration about adultery doesn't grab you, Hosea shifts metaphors to the same kind of relationship between a parent and a child. In Hosea 11, God says, When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son, but the more I called them, the more they went from me. The surprise in each of these metaphors is that God, the giver, the generous one, God is also the one who gets hurt. This is not an omnipotent portrayal of God. Here, God wants something, yearns for something, and does not get it. We are supposed to notice yearning as one of the characteristics of God. Desire can be painful. And enduring that pain is not just a part of who we are, it's a part of who God is. I expect that most often we consider desire or yearning and the pain that comes with it to be a bad thing. But even God experiences yearning. That causes me to ask why. To understand why yearning might be important, I find it helpful to think about what life would be like if there was no yearning, if there is no desire. A lack of desire is what life looks like when you just don't care. There's actually a word in the spiritual lexicon for the absence of care. It's an old Greek word called acedia. Author Kathleen Norris wrote a book about acedia, about what it is and the struggle against it. It's a little like sadness. It's a little like depression. But it's also different. She describes it this way. I believe that such standard diction dictionary definitions of acedia as apathy, boredom, torpor, do not begin to cover it. And while we may find it convenient to regard it as a more primitive word for what we now term depression, the truth is more complex. Having experienced both conditions, she continues, I think it likely that much of the restless boredom, frantic escapism, commitment phobia, and enervating despair that plagues us today is the ancient demon of acedia in modern dress. Acedia is a word that has come and gone in literature since, since ancient Greece, but it has often reappeared to describe historical moments that have caused people to feel helpless and hopeless. The fear and foreboding of the bubonic plague in the First and Second World Wars, times when people have looked at the state of things wondering if anything good might come. As Kathleen Norris has noted, acedia may also be present today. 
I mean, the malaise people feel about our political culture or about rising rates of suicide and addiction. And there seem to be no answers. It is easy to see how people slip into acedia, how they become people who just don't care. Acedia is life without desire, without yearning without longing. I didn't plan to talk about it this morning, but it it seems obvious to say that our responses to gun violence and mass shootings have taken on a quality of acedia. The shock and great sadness we once experienced has turned into a numbing wonder if anything can be done. And we know on a gut level that something about that response just isn't right. Certainly, God is angry and yearning for us to confront our culture's obsession with violence and guns. Where we have lost our own deep yearning to change things, desire is not a problem. Lack of care is the problem. And desire is the answer. Desire is a remedy to many of life's troubles. A desire for things that matter and last. And this is something that spirituality is supposed to give us. In what we read this morning from Hosea, God's experience of yearning for Israel is the very thing that is going to save them. So when God is inclined to walk away from Israel because they have already walked away from God, God's yearning is what turns into God's compassion. God wonders, God asks, how can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me at the thought. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my fierce anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and no mortal. The Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. How does our own acedia find its way back to desire, to compassion, to yearning for something better? Kathleen Norris compares acedia to clinical depression. She says that while depression is an illness that is treatable by counseling and medication, acedia is a vice that is best countered by spiritual practice and the discipline of prayer. On days like today, That does not mean that we blithely offer thoughts and prayers to people whose lives have been turned upside down. 
It means that we pray long enough and hard enough in this place and after we leave it to be sure that we still care. And to ask God to show us how we can each play a part in changing things for the better. It's worth mentioning that one other way we talk about spiritual desire, one other way that we talk about longing or yearning, we Christians talk about hunger and thirst. And an act of eating and drinking in response to that hunger and thirst is one of our most important spiritual practices. It means something that we celebrate the Lord's Supper as a response to a spiritual hunger and thirst that never goes away. That's why we do this over and over and over again. It is expected that our desire will wax and wane in life, that our desire for closeness with God may go away sometimes, but that it comes back, it returns throughout our lives. Each time we come to this table, we're meant to be filled with a sense of God's love and care for us. And yet it is to be expected that our hunger and thirsts will come back again. And we will need more. So God invites us to the table yet again. Now before I'm through, I need to acknowledge there are things in life we should not desire, or should not desire quite as much as we do. This morning's message cannot be applied universally. However, if you have wondered if there is something wrong with you because you have not found wholeness or fulfillment in your spiritual life, if you have wondered why everyone from fellow Christians to yoga instructors won't stop talking about it, if you have wondered if there is a place in Christian faith for people who do not always feel fulfilled, and if you have wondered where your longing for more fits into your relationship with God today, I invite you to come to a table where hunger and thirst are not only welcome, they are expected. We need yearning in our lives in order to care in order to care for one another and care for a better world. So at this table, you are welcome and expected. You are welcome and expected just as you are today. Come and yearn and pray for something better.